Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Barry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we'll be talking about Season 5, Episodes 3 and 4, High Sparrow, and Sons of the Harpy, both directed by Mark Millard. Millard. Mark Millard. <laughs> I, I hope I never meet him. I won't be able to say his last name. Well, we've, we've seen a few from him at this point, from even the, the more the season, se- season 7, mm-hmm. um, and it felt like those were maybe a little sort of unconvinced at first, but then... The second episode that we watched really came around, so I, I was actually pretty excited for these, yeah. knowing that uh, we ended up quite liking the, his directorial style. And I thought both of these were good. They've, especially the first one, High Sparrow, felt very long, mm-hmm. which is unusual. Usually, I get my Game of Thrones fix, and I'm like, oh, it's already over. Yeah. This one, not it wasn't bad. It didn't drag, but I was just like, wow, this is still one episode. And maybe it's because we are all over the place with both of them, mm-hmm. but um, there's a lot packed in. Yeah, it won some sort of Emmy or something. But the, like, part of a qualification for that, I think, was the episode had to be like over an hour long. <laughs> so I wonder if they were like shooting for it. I don't know. But yeah, it was lengthy. And I feel like this was where the seasons picked up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I think I liked both of these episodes. I, they're not perfect, but I liked both of them, I would say, more than the openers. The I agree. Are just very dry. I agree. Although we're still table setting, right? We're still yeah. introducing new characters. I don't think it's bad, but I mean, we're now four episodes in and we're still having, mm-hmm. setting up like, and these are the major antagonists yeah. for the season. That I mean, that's why this took two novels for George R. R. Martin right. to do, right? But it does feel like there's a lot in here. It's extremely compressed. Like, if you are coming to this having read the books, it'd be like, holy cow. Like... <laughs> We are like four episodes in here and either through the first kind of like a quarter of these books mm-hmm. or skipping past so much that that would normally be happening here. There's just incredible amounts of mm-hmm. incredible pace that they're keeping us at. Yeah. And some of it comes off really well and some of it gets shortchanged, but we'll talk about yeah. that. So before we start, Dan, would you please give us a rundown of The High Sparrow? Sure thing. Arya gets acquainted with the interior of the house in black and white. She sees men being given water from a central pool in the temple and then later collapsing. Later, the waif starts hitting Arya with a stick after she asks the question, Who are you? And Arya answers, No one. Jockin tells Arya to get rid of all of her old stuff, the things that signify her as Arya Stark. She does this, except for Needle, which she hides in some rocks. Then Jockin takes her to a part of the temple where they clean the dead bodies to prepare them for who knows what. Tommen and Marjorie are wed, which further enrages Cersei, as Marjorie seeks to drive a wedge between she and Tommen. Later, in King's Landing, the religious zealots known as the Sparrows raid Littlefinger's brothel and extract the High Septon. They flog him as he walks down the street naked. The High Septon asks for revenge of the small council, but Cersei goes to meet this High Sparrow instead, who is supposedly the leader of the Sparrows. She supposedly throws the High Septon into the dungeons as well. Littlefinger reveals his intention to marry Sansa to Ramsay Bolton. Sansa is convinced to go along with this under the guise of potential revenge. They arrive at Winterfell, and Roos questions Littlefinger's loyalties when he receives a summons from Cersei. Jon refuses Stannis' offer of legitimization and lordship. In the mess hall of Castle Black, he promotes Alistair Thorne to First Ranger and commands Jaina Slint to rebuild the Greyguard Castle. Slint refuses, and Jon takes him out into the yard and beheads him. Tyrion and Varys take a pit stop on their voyage to Marine in Volantis. They see a red priestess preaching about Daenerys as some kind of savior. 
In a brothel, Tyrion finds himself unable to bring himself to patronize the establishment, and he goes to relieve himself, but is captured by Jorah, who claims that he will take him to the queen. You don't know what queen he's talking about? No. Well, I mean, we have a pretty good idea. <laughs> but Tyrion does Honestly, yeah. Tyrion thinks it's the other queen. Right. Yeah, so we are all over the place. Yeah. Normally, I write all my notes in a little notebook here, mm-hmm. and usually it's like I try to fill one episode. It's like two pages, so it's like if I have it open, I can see the entire episode. Mm-hmm. This one? Three pages. It's just, <laughs> there was, it was, a, like, as we said, it's a long episode. They took us to a lot of places and, and set up a lot of stuff, so there was just quite a bit to it. Mm-hmm. So we start in the house of black and white, and at this point, I'm still really loving it, especially seeing the interior and that it has shrines to the many different gods, especially gods that symbolize death. So of the seven, right, the Mm -hmm. the faith of Westeros, we see the stranger, we see the red god with the heart of fire. Arya says that she sees the drowned god, and she sees some other other things that she recognizes. There's a heart tree face on there as well. Right. And so we learn a little bit more about what the faceless, faceless men are. They're starting to sort of firm up that philosophy a little, especially in that you don't serve yourself, that faceless men serve more than almost anyone else. At least that's the idea. Yeah, it, it's still unclear exactly what is happening. We're sort of in Arya's shoes here as she is trying to figure it all out. So we have Jaquen, who seems like this is the figure that we knew as Jockin. It's the same person, the same body that was with Arya, as weird as that is. Because he has the same manner of speech. He has the same manner of speech, and Arya talks about things that she said to him back in Harrenhal, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't seem to say, like, that wasn't me, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) He he responds as if, yes, Mm -hmm. that was... So, again, I think it's a bit strange that they go with that choice, but... I think there's a number of casting choices that they make this season and really plot constructions that are very much like, let's, instead of getting another actor and another character in here, let's put a familiar face on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's definitely another one of those cases, which Mm -hmm. I don't think is entirely detrimental. I just think it's a little odd is all. But yeah, this is a new set though. You know, the House of Black and White has all the gods in it, like you said, and prominently features this creepy pitch black pool in the middle of everything that uh we don't know entirely what's in there maybe some kind of poison not exactly clear but they're one of the opening shots where they're sort of framing the house of black and white after they pan over all the the gods that sort of spin around rotate just above this this pool and so it it's very ominous and mysterious Mm -hmm. and they're going through the beats that are pretty typical for any sort of kung fu movie that she's like i'm gonna train with you i'm gonna be Mm -hmm. your apprentice and she mostly has to sweep yeah so she wants to learn how to fight but first she has to learn how to sweep so you know nothing john you know nothing Arya stark yeah moments here which i mean makes sense that she wouldn't i don't know yeah even later with the wafers she starts getting you know the wave starts striking her with a stick it's Mm -hmm. it's again very much like you know you don't even know how to train (laughs) Right. right. You don't even know that you're that you are training. You just think that you're sweeping the floors and Arya's rather indignant about the whole thing. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Waif is an inscrutable character to me and I'm not always sure of what her relationship with the Jackin character mm-hmm. is because they seem to maybe be in opposition, but is that part of the training? Who knows? Yeah. But she seems particularly upset that Arya would have the gall to say that she is no one, mm-hmm. right? Because she's like, you have no idea what that right. means. She's not a very good actor at this point. No. You know, I guess is the whole deal. 
And by throwing away her things, she's maybe one step closer to that. Mm -hmm. But being unable to give up Needle, I think, is a pretty big clue to us that she will never finish her training. She'll never successfully be a faceless man. Yeah, and I would say that when she is throwing her stuff away and and is holding Needle and there's this tension about, like, is she going to throw Needle Mm -hmm. in there too? Uh, that, That might even be, like, the emotional center of this episode mm-hmm. just the oh no is, is she gonna do it the relationship that we are most bonded to is aria to her sword right. <laughs> because it's aria to john it's aria to the rest of the starks and the starks are in a bad way and so if she loses that then that's another one essentially lost and we kind of lose any hope for aria coming back or I don't know. I think her story would lose it. You could see argue that her story loses some momentum anyway, mm-hmm. but we, I think it loses a, all of its audience motivation to sort of have an interest in her story if she doesn't have this lingering starkness waiting for her in this pile of rocks. Right, right. That she maybe will learn all she can while she's there, but she's not actually buying in, right. drinking the Kool-Aid, as it were, mm-hmm. out of the out of the center yes. fountain. Yeah, it, who knows? It could be cherry flavored. I don't know. <laughs> fruit punch we go to king's landing is our our second location here and i liked this opening establishing shot that they have Mm -hmm. it seemed like it was maybe quite telling they frame king's landing as this kind of peninsula going out into the sea and the red keep in the far distance poking out uh, on top of this hill and center frame is Septa Baylor. And a couple things about this. One, there's this great distance between the two. And we know later in the season when Cersei is going to have to do her walk of punishment, that is going to be this long walk mm-hmm. from one location to the other. And so I think it's setting that up. It's all, of course, centering us on the religious aspect of the city. And then also it's just surrounded by all of these houses, which to me is this kind of surrounding of all the the sparrows and sort of the populace yeah which not to get too ahead of myself here but like i think when you're talking about these kind of unsatisfying villains i had this sort of uh i guess an epiphany of sorts where i was like oh well i think one of the things that might be unsatisfying is so many of the villains and sort of the antagonists of this season are set up as kind of the anonymous Hmm. and in terms of, say, literally in, in Bravos with faceless men, mm-hmm. the unnamed or common people kind of groups. So the sparrows who don't really go by any names or titles. And the, the sons of the harpy. The sons of the harpy who are masked. And even if you want to go up north and talk about the wildlings and the wall and sort of the, the looming threat, of course, of the White Walkers, mm-hmm. you have all these fronts oh and then um you could make the case even in Dorne if we're talking about the sand snakes we're talking about all these bastard children who mm-hmm. uh, are rising up against Doran Mortel and sort of the establishment down there and so if you have essentially like all these new threats that are kind of tough to even put a name on it's just kind of like these groups of people all these sort of populist uprisings that mm-hmm. are going on that I think sets an interesting tone and plot-wise, it's an interesting spin on things to, to have things go this direction. But it is, I think, tough to literally put a face on this thing <laughs> and to have this villain when it's this faceless group. Yeah. No, I think that's very astute. I think that's right. And that maybe that the sparrows, one, because they have 
the high spare they have Jonathan Price and Lancel mm-hmm. and other faces we recognize that they feel a little bit more satisfying, but especially the Sons of the Harpy with mm. their mask. It's hard to tell even what social class are these people from. Yeah. Like who like who are they? Yeah. And then it, it makes it sort of like they're just these random masked ninjas that mm-hmm. are apparently way better than the unsullied at fighting. So who are they? Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. we never really find out either. But. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the feeling of like I think you're right about the tone and I and I like it that we've been focused on people with land and titles mm-hmm. and money and that it's all sort of court intrigue and then you have all these other people who are coming up underneath. But those people also have stories and motivations and some of those are fleshed out to a better degree than others. Yeah. So anyway, we are at King's Landing. <laughs> Not to, to deviate too much, but we have that opening shot, and we have a, a much more measured and you know, like non-eccentric wedding ceremony here in the Sept. Everything kind of goes off without a hitch. It mainly seems to be, again, about inflaming Cersei's undercurrent of uh, worry and animosity that she has towards Marjorie here. And Marjorie just digs the hooks in. Well, she's even wearing clothes that look like Cersei's. She's starting mm-hmm. to wear metalwork on her bodice mm-hmm. and I don't know what the actual name is. I can only think of peplum, but I think that that's a more modern okay. <laughs> uh, look. But the, the sort of side, like the things that emphasize the hips that mm-hmm. are metal, that's also a, a look that Cersei had. And so Marjorie's really coming for her. Going to mm-hmm. take everything, including her fashion. Yeah. But we've got the wedding, which seems very happy, at least for Tommen and Marjorie. Cersei looks pretty upset. Then we transition right into the wedding night, mm-hmm. which at least Tommen is very excited about. Sure. And that's when Marjorie starts planting the seed about oh, it's so nice that your mother will always be watching right. over you because you're her baby boy and that's going to be true forever. Mm-hmm. And Tommen is easily incepted. Yes. I mean, the dialogue that happens between Cersei and Marjorie is some of Marjorie's most kind of inflammatory mm-hmm. gestures towards Cersei. Who, Cersei's kind of playing the courtesy role. She doesn't say anything outright. We know there's this undercurrent of bottled up anger and rage and she despises marjorie but marjorie just leans into the fact that cersei can't really do anything to her face and says things like should i call you queen regent equate what is it queen dowager queen or queen Queen mother Mother? something like that cersei comes to see them and she goes oh sorry we don't have any wine we don't like drink this early in the morning (laughs) yeah so i mean it's it's a it's an amazing scene and it's so well acted and Marjorie actually comes off as kind of cruel. Yeah. And Cersei seems actually chastened. I don't I don't believe her offers of help, right? She's like yeah. anything you need and that that's probably not true, but she seems like those words actually cut mm. pretty deep. Yeah. And so you feel a little bit bad for Cersei, which is unusual. Right. But Cersei does have some good biting words at least when she's speaking to Tommen, mm-hmm. very again slyly done so Tommen doesn't take too much offense. She'll be like, "She's pretty." She smiles a lot, kind of doll-like. You think she's intelligent? Oh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, so they're, everyone's getting some good burns in. Uh-huh. And I really did like, as as Cersei leaves her, her conversation with Marjorie and is, is fuming, but has put a good face on it, and behind her there's the sound of Marjorie and her ladies-in-waiting's laughter. Yeah. And that seems like such a f- echo of, of Tywin and, and, and his fear of, of mm-hmm. people laughing at him. And then now everyone is laughing at Cersei. And it's going to make her do crazy things. I think it might have even, they might have even filmed it this way. I can't remember in that opening flashback as did the Maggie the Frog, that scene ends with her cackling yes. at the prophecy that yeah. she said. So Cersei is 
this is the season of Cersei kind of being mocked. Right. And of course, the that will come to an absolute climax this season too right. of, of being of being laughed at. But I, I liked it. I thought that was a great scene. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, we could just stick with Cersei here yeah. and the little bit of setup. They they do have this scene in the brothel with the High Septon, Olivar. <laughs> They're all doing a bit of role play here, which is mainly funny for on Olivar's part because he's got this big beard mm-hmm. on, like he's supposed to be some sort of priest. Yeah, it's a really funny, but obviously, like the High Septon is not a very devout man no if he's acting out this fantasy where he gets to choose from all of the god figures it's it's as blasphemous as possible (laughs) but it is but whoever thought of that was really good because it's a perfect indication of like this man is unfit and then and to give us some idea of maybe why the small folk are upset right the faith really does seem to like the church is corrupted because yeah. I think Tyrion chose this man, right? This is his replacement? I think so, for the man who got torn apart in the yeah. streets. So it makes sense that Tyrion would have chosen this except yeah. Right. He's a very into the brothels. <laughs> um, but, I mean, uh, the other kind of thing that was kind of neat, actually, is this is the second time this episode that we have a representation of the stranger yeah. in some form. It's like, oh, how do they represent the stranger? In this case, it's the woman has essentially, like, her hair in, like, a ponytail, but, like, on the front of her face... So what is she? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, as much as it's blasphemous and probably just another way to like shoehorn some nudity. But but it was interesting to see how they decided to represent the gods in this Uh sort of like sexy form. Yeah, and what is it? He says like he has to choose them, and does he pick the maiden or the mother? The maiden. And and Olivar goes always the maiden. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that he goes through the whole rigmarole of, but he always picks the maiden. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's forced out and forced to reveal himself in all yeah, of his glory right. in the streets and seems to be probably beaten even after that because when he shows up to the small council he's got lots of welts yeah, like on his face. Yeah. Yeah, he he pleads to the small council Falls on some deaf ears there. Except for Pycelle, who totally <laughs> is like, no, we need to take care of these old men who go to the brothels. Yeah, he's like, a man's personal business should be kept <laughs> private. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice little touch there. And then, you know, I think the, the big scene is Cersei then going to meet the High Sparrow, Jonathan Price. And what the scene is in this kind of narrow alleyway, I believe this, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, I believe they shot this in Dubrovnik. Yeah. Which seems like a cool place. I'd like to go there. It's like all these extremely narrow passageways that really allow them to cram people together in a, a way that feels very compact and closed in. And I think that this introduction of the High Sparrow is, this is not a scene that happens exactly this way in the books. I mean, she doesn't go out to the streets. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the High Sparrow has already sort of deposed the High Septon uh, by the time Cersei goes to meet him. Yeah, Cersei takes a much more proactive role with the High mm-hmm. Sparrow in the show than she does in the, like, she brings more of this on herself yeah. than she even does in, in the books. But, yeah, next episode too, for yeah. sure. And I do think that her her excursion into some of the poorest part of town she is is fearless, right? Mm-hmm. Even though these people probably hate her guts. And I think that this is an important contrast point to when Tommen in the next episode will try to go confront the High Sparrow, mm-hmm. that he is stymied immediately. He does not have the wherewithal to do it. Yeah. But that she, even though this is a dangerous place for her, she shows really no fear. She just goes and does it. She seems to express a little like, oh man, it stinks. But mm-hmm. that's about it. Otherwise, she she does not seem that uncomfortable. 
even though you'd think that these people would make her very uncomfortable. Mm. And I think they don't get into this story in the show of things up at the wall with Mance Raider's wife and Dala and mm-hmm. Val and mm-hmm. these kind of characters don't exist in the show. And I think Cersei kind of expresses a similar sort of ignorance to what, say, a Stannis or somebody does when they finally get up to the wall and they're like, they would in the books they treat Val as this princess and mm-hmm. she's the heir to the king beyond the wall and all this stuff and she has the baby and it's, Cersei seems similarly unable to process the organization of a group of people that would not necessarily regard the High Sparrow as this one true benevolent leader but just so happens to be the person who everybody has kind of chosen to, to take some leads from but he doesn't really like dictate everything that goes on. No, no. And he, he seems maybe, I mean, who knows how, how sincere it is, but he thinks that, like, th- these men are maybe too violent. Mm-hmm. They could be, what he, he uses some phrase. Oh, it's a really good phrase. He says, like, they could have been more careful with the blade. Right. Yeah. Right. And so he he doesn't maybe have problems with the spirit, but the execution, maybe, although he yeah, might be playing true. coy. But, yeah, and he says, I'm not special. He sort of is like, I'm not really the leader. She doesn't seem to believe him. And I think she may consider this false modesty. And so she's like, oh, I know what game this guy's yeah. playing. And that's maybe her one of her biggest that's miscalculations. True. That she seems, both in this episode and the next, to actually like this man. Mm-hmm. And that seems very strange. Yeah. Because they are, they do not have anything in common. And when she's talking about the hypocrisy and the 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 way that people who are who are wealthy seem to be beyond justice, he has different things in mind than she does. Yeah, and I think especially next episode, it might even make a turn where he's kind of maybe got her figured out. The second that she makes a concession, gives him power, is approving of what they've done to the High Septon, he might even feel like he's got this one in the bag. Like, oh, I I can just keep pulling the strings. Yeah, but she actually seems, for someone who often does not like does not conceal her dislike of people, she seems to actually like the High Septon. Be like, oh, I've. This is the perfect tool to get rid of my Tyrell problem, mm-hmm. right? And but I, I just I don't know what she thinks their common ground is, but she thinks she's found it. Yeah, maybe that they're both like leaders or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And now starting the pathway down, one of the biggest diversions the show makes from the books is this convergence of Sansa and Jane Poole stories, or not even really convergence. It's Sansa taking the part of Jane Poole here. Mm-hmm. It just so happens she's Sansa, so that has different consequences. Right. Jane Poole in the books being sold off to the Boltons under the guise of supposedly being Arya Stark, though most people highborn seem to know that's not the case, but the rest of the common folk and the other lords don't so they kind of pass it off it's just a lie that everybody keeps Mm -hmm. but here it actually is said that it's sansa and it's openly done as sansa it's just they are keeping it from that information from getting down you know out of the north Mm -hmm. because cersei's still on the hunt for sansa here so she wouldn't like that so littlefinger and sansa arrive at moat caelin which seems to be this crossroads point where littlefinger reveals what he intends to do that this marriage proposal he talked about before was not for him but for her and sansa is appalled at first because the boltons are the killers of starks Mm -hmm. and she wants nothing to do with it but littlefinger manages to convince her i thought this scene was interesting for a couple ways one i thought their outfits are strangely triangular they Mm -hmm. have these cloaks yeah yeah and 
I don't know, they almost look like these kind of like game pieces or something like that. I suppose that could be the, the parallel there, or maybe it's just thick cloaks, but there are these two kind of tandem figures as well. They are cut the same silhouette. Yeah, they're looking very similar, and especially with Sansa's dark hair. She's looking... I hadn't thought of this before, but when Peter says, you know, in another world, in a better world, you might have been my daughter, Mm -hmm. he is sort of making her look like his daughter, which makes sense also in the books. He's passing her off as his bastard daughter. But with the dark hair and with the sort of matching outfits, she's looking a little bit like a little, little finger. Yeah. And there's a interesting camera movement that happens here. I don't know if if you saw this too, but this is back and forth. And at one point, Littlefinger turns in front of her, takes her by the shoulders, and is getting right in her face saying, trying to convince her that mm-hmm. like this is the way to kind of get revenge. And when he makes that turn, the camera, almost in a handheld almost kind of fashion, steps in and zooms in a little bit. And I think it's a... A weird instance of them employing camera movement in a way that feels like there is a camera person there. Mm -hmm. It almost becomes, it's a very kind of documentary style move, kind of similar angle as if could be played up to comic effect in in a sort of a mockumentary show like The Office or something like that. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, there's a scene happening over there. We're going to zoom in on it, you know, (laughs) in this kind of very active way, like as if essentially somebody would be there with a camera for like eight hours and they happen to see something interesting and so they just zoom in from where they are um, because everything's just spur of the moment. Mm -hmm. So it has that kind of movement, which I think it's just strange because usually the camera is very much uh, like an impartial player in the scenes. And in this case, it felt very active and very much like rather than just us observing us kind of as the audience in the shoes of this camera person. Hmm. so yeah. that was a little, just a little different. Uh, yeah. And it's only a, an instant, and uh, then it, they don't do anything like that again. But hmm. I thought it was strange. Yeah. I mean, that's not the only strange thing about this scene, too. Because I mean, it becomes more clear in the next episode. But if I were Sansa, I'd be asking some questions. He's like, this is the best way to avenge your family. And if I were her, I'd say, what on earth do you mean mm-hmm. by marrying a man, giving him the key to the North, which is me, <laughs> and taking his name? How am I avenging my family? Right. And he elaborates a little bit, but it's still not a very good plan. Yeah. And I think there's something very telling. He says, stop being a bystander to tragedy. And what that seems to mean is like, oh, no, you're going to be the main character yeah. of the tragedy. You're not going to bystand anything. <laughs> you're going to be the recipient yeah. of a lot of tragedy. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a weird sell, but I guess that as much as this dark Sansa was built up as maybe someone who's more in charge of her life, she's really not. She is yeah. easily convinced by Littlefinger. They don't really have the real reveal of Littlefinger's plan either until mm-hmm. next episode mm-hmm. where he talks about Stannis and all this kind of stuff where yeah. it seems like, oh, that's why you should have been okay with going with this plan because the actual plan is that you're going to be rescued. You know, it's Right. But for what he presented, it's like, mm-hmm. run the other way. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bad plan. But she agrees. And and decides to go to Winterfell, but it's not really hers anymore. Yeah, and there's a recurring kind of back and forth in this episode between this correspondence between Cersei and Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what this is all about. It just seemed like maybe it was constructed to give something that maybe undercuts the relationship uh, for Roose Bolton. And then also 
gives Littlefinger an excuse to leave Sansa alone, but I don't really know like they don't say like what the point of him being summoned to King's Landing is, and I don't remember why the, why Cersei summons him in the first place because we see her ask for Littlefinger. It's not just the letter arrives. I remember a meeting between them, but now I don't remember what they talk about. Yeah. So I know that I know that he'll go and and speak with her, but it it might be about the Eerie and Liza, mm-hmm. or he may say that he's looking for Sansa. I'm not. I don't really yeah. remember. I just wasn't sure. It seemed weightless. Yeah, probably a device to to leave Sansa alone because it's possible that if he were around that Roos, or excuse me, Ramsay wouldn't dare to do what he does. Right. But, you know, we've got more scenes with Jon going to see Stannis. Jon is now the Lord Commander, though, so it's a little bit of a different status. You know, I think he is able to have a little bit more justification for not wanting to take the offer here because he's Lord Commander when he has to make this decision in the show because mm-hmm. it's all happening so fast. Davos, once again, gets to play his hand at being the convincing mm-hmm. uh, party here. And it stays afterwards and it's like, oh, one more thing. He tries to convince John one more time to essentially go with Stannis. Yeah, I think so. He, he does, I mean, and it's it's not wrong and mm-hmm. it'll it'll end up being what John does anyway, but he says, as long as the Boltons hold the North, the North will suffer. Mm-hmm. And that's true. It's true. I don't, I still don't think it, you know, I think John is justified in seeing mm-hmm. like, this doesn't seem to fall under my purview here really anymore. Right. So he <laughs> Not my it. department. No. <laughs> but then the real moment where John proves himself is is when he's assigning the new roles, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's the great buildup that Alistair Thorne thinks he's going to be given the job of digging a new privy trench yeah. and is expecting insult and instead is honored. And Jano Slint is, I mean, he's being sent away, mm-hmm. but I don't think he's being sent to die in the way that he thinks he is. Right. No, he's just essentially saying, I think John is saying here, like, I don't like you, so I don't want you here. And also, you're when you're around Alistair Thorne, you're kind of worthless. So maybe on your own, you were commander of the City Watch. Maybe you can command some people to do something. Yeah, I mean, he's being given command of an entire castle, even mm-hmm. if it's in rough shape. So, But Janos really uh, overplays his hand. Yeah, he does not quite realize the the extent of his refusal to do so. Mm-hmm. And John, you know, makes sure that he knows. He's like, this is a command. Are you refusing the command? I'm giving you a chance here to, you know, recant. Mm -hmm. And uh, he does not. Yeah, I I really like this sequence. It because first you have the the building tension with Alistair Thorne, and then the tension of Are you refusing a direct order? And he says you can stick your order up your bastard ass. Mm -hmm, And then and then he's like, take him outside, get my sword. (laughs) And then we think that maybe Alistair Thorne is going to intervene, and he doesn't. And Mm -hmm. then it just keeps. The, the tension just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even even when Janice's head is on the block where he calls for mercy and you're like, okay, well, what's John going to do? pause, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, that's, he's asking for mercy. And then he gets to do something which is kind of rare in the show where he gets his last words sort of sum up his whole deal, mm-hmm. which is, I'm afraid, I've always been afraid. And we think, well, maybe that will do it, right? But those words actually seem to piss John off and he takes his head. Yeah. So it's just a really good building tension being like, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And mm. then it does. And then Stannis over there is like, attaboy. Yeah, he's like, man, I wish you were my son. <laughs> um, I was surprised that this happened this episode, though. One, again, because things are moving so quickly. Mm-hmm. But even looking back at the episode titles of this season, episode five here is called Kill the Boy. And 
that's sort of this recurring mantra that Eamon gives John in the books about being Lord Commander, essentially like you've got to put these boyish things aside, you've got to take control, you know, be really be in charge and make the hard decisions mm-hmm. and uh, be firm uh, and just about stuff. And so this is like a pivotal moment with regard to that in in the books uh, with that mantra being said that John ends up going with this is like okay he's fine he's done it he's killed the boy he's, yeah. so he be- can become the man so one i just i was like oh well that'll be happening in episode 5 when that when that episode mm-hmm. comes up but nope much sooner yeah they're not wasting any time and so the last place we go is Volantis Tyrion is going a little stir crazy and wants to go out into into the city Varys thinks it's a really bad idea because it's the most populous, I think, it of the free... It's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, of the free cities. Yeah, he thinks it's a bad idea because it is a bad idea. But we get to be in a new place, and it's kind of cool, mm-hmm. and it's stacked up many, many levels on sort of bridges, mm-hmm. and it's very tight quarters. It sort of reminds me of hutongs in China, okay. that like the really narrow alleyways with living space or, or, or um, selling space built into like every... Nook and Cranny. Mm-hmm. I really like that. We also see a space that is filled with slaves mm-hmm. and the Volantian. Is that the. I think it's Volantine. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> the Volantine mm-hmm. slaves all have tattoos that yeah. show their different roles. And we meet, like you said in the recap, a red priestess mm-hmm. who is already preaching about Daenerys. So we get to see that, like, that story has spread. They don't lean into it too much, but, you know. We know that Varys is a little wary of this kind of religious mm-hmm. zealotry and maybe even Red Priestesses in particular. So we see him kind of side-eyeing this and that, that, that they should move on. But when Tyrion points out that, like, oh, we're going to see this mockingly, like, we're going to see the Savior, you didn't tell me that, mm-hmm. it's clear that Varys is kind of like, yeah, because I because I'm not into this. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I didn't say it. <laughs> right. I'm not thrilled that magic users right. are on her side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they sort of move back on it, but I was surprised that after walking through the streets, seeing that prostitutes are slaves and marked, mm-hmm. that he's like, let us go to a brothel. Yeah. I'm like, Tyrion, you know who's working at that brothel. You want to go to a slave brothel? Yeah. And he's, I guess he doesn't care at that point. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe his inability to follow through with the with the prostitute that he was flirting with was it that he finally noticed her tattoo uh i don't know i think it was just that he was going through the motions that he normally would Mm. as Tyrion lannister and realized like oh you know i killed shay right yeah that's what i thought too so the the slave issue is not even no i don't think so no i don't (laughs) think that cool Tyrion into his uh conscious here at all. And uh, the other way that we see that the story of Daenerys has spread is that there is a woman who is dressed like Daenerys mm-hmm. at the brothel. I guess this was actually a joke by Michelle Clapton okay. that she, they, she didn't think they would actually use it, but everyone thought it was so funny that they were like, we have to use this costume and, mm-hmm. the, and the hair in, in this shot. And so it's, it is pretty funny. Yeah. I think they make Jorah a little bit more pathetic in the books here. In in the books, he's the one with the fake Daenerys. In the show here, he seems a little disgusted yeah. by by the notion. But I kind of like that Jorah would be so low that he'd be like, I'll just be with this woman who kind of looks like Daenerys enough, you know, yeah. and that's his, sort of his dream. Yeah, although he, in the next episode, I mean, he 
he seems pretty pathetic. Yeah, that's true. So I think I think you're right though. I think they could have leaned in to how pathetic he is that he that he was the one who has faked Daenerys right. on his lap. Instead, they really lean into like honor in his mm-hmm. sort of. He made the mis- this mistake, but he's definitely a changed man. Mm-hmm. And so Tyrion is like, "Oh, I've made a mistake. I can't. I can't sleep with you." And then I feel like this is where he does wherever he goes. He decides he has to pee off of it, right? Um, which again, territory. It seems like a really male thing. Yeah. <laughs> and while he's peeing, he is vulnerable to kidnap. Yep, I, I think I read that. That actually, the shot of him peeing off this wall window. Bridge the street. I don't Not really sure. remember where he was, but it was shot pretty much exactly the same way when he was peeing off the top of the wall. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, Jor gets him. Yeah, <laughs> really, no surprise that this was going to happen. Like, what's Varys doing? One again, what is Varys doing? Just sitting in a brothel that he has no interest in. Yeah, I don't even. Varys doesn't drink. Does he drink? I don't remember. Um, it would make sense to his character if he didn't. Yeah, yeah. So off they go to the queen and. He is confused. I think we know, right? Does I, the audience yeah. know? I feel like I. I mean, I had read the books at this point, but mm-hmm. I felt pretty certain that he would be going to Daenerys. Like that—that's his whole deal—is trying to get back in her good graces. I, more he just so. orbits Daenerys. Yeah. So. It doesn't. He doesn't seem like, especially if he is, again, kind of disgusted by a prostitute posing mm-hmm. as Daenerys, that he would still see the her the honor in her and sort of the the justness in her quest that he would want to support that rather than being like, oh, well, I'm going to just sell you for money. Right. Although I, I guess maybe some people thought that like it was his way to get back into Westeros, but he was already yeah. pardoned. So anyway, yeah, that was it. Yeah, and then the after episode thing, the other member of the WB calls him Toe Man again, so... It's catching. Maybe we'll be saying Toman next. So in the next episode, Toman. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> we do have uh, another episode here, Sons of the Harpy, which in contrast, I think is one of the shorter ones I think of so. the season after one of the longer ones here. So uh, Kate, will you give us a recap of Sons of the Harpy? Sure thing. Jorah steals a boat and continues his kidnap of Tyrion. Later, Tyrion is able to deduce who Jorah is and his plan and thinks both are stupid. Jamie and Bronn sail to Dorne and kill four Dornishmen. We see that the captain of the ship has already alerted the Sand Snakes to Jamie and Bronn's presence, and that the Sand Snakes join Alaria's plan to start a war. Mace Tyrell and Marin Trant are sent to negotiate with the Iron Bank. Cersei offers to rearm the long-defunct Faith Militant, who immediately crack down on alcohol, prostitution, and homosexuality. Loras is imprisoned, and Marjorie is furious. Tommen weakly tries to free him, but is essentially helpless. Melisandre tries to make a shadow baby with Jon, and Stannis tells his baby, Shireen, that he loves her. At Winterfell, Sansa and Littlefinger talk about Lyanna Stark, and Littlefinger reveals his plan to make Sansa Wardeness of the North. Danny and Sir Barristan talk about Rhaegar, and as Hisdar argues again for the reopening of the fighting pits, the Sons of the Harpy make a coordinated attack on Danny's forces in the street. Many are killed, including perhaps Grey Worm and Sir Barristan. Yeah, perhaps. I thought that was... I don't really... Uh, I like a lot of the things that are in both of these episodes, but the way this one ends with that, I thought, was uh, kind of cheap. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we should maybe even start with it, because I think the last scenes were some of the worst. Mm. And like I mentioned already, the Unsullied are supposed to be an elite fighting force, and they get their asses handed to them <laughs> by some random dudes in masks. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just hoping, I think I was hoping for a better fight. I mean, mm. we see that Barristan is worth his salt, and so is Grey Worm, yeah. but everyone else, useless. But it's a waste of Barristan, right? I know. I mean, I know. we had one scene earlier that so they tried to give him, like, his, you know, his spotlight where he's talking about Rhaegar liking to sing, and so another instance of kind of, like, letting Daenerys know about her brother that she never knew, right? Yeah. I mean, what was he like? And he wasn't a fighter. He he liked to sing and all these kind of yeah. nice little stories that, that Barristan has about him. When Barristan exits, she t- tells him to, you know, go and sing a song for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do think that's a nice parallel that, that would end with him fighting because the way that Jamie talked about Barristan fighting, that he was a, a painter. His, mm-hmm. uh, his only color was red, though. So to, like, have the, the idea of singing and painting and sort of put these things in parallel. I like that he goes down fighting, but not maybe in this, you know, not in this instance. And, like, uh, that he is also taken out in this way. And yeah. that the episode ends with it unclear who is living and who is dying, Grey Worm and Barristan, both kind of laying on the ground. And then one of them is dead, but not the other one. Right. Like, right. And I, if I, I think I remember right that, like, Barristan, I don't know that he's on screen again. I think that they're like, oh, he died. Like, that no, it's, they have like a, oh, they, they do? have him dead on oh, like okay. a plank or something okay. like that. Because I, I know that the actor himself was surprised that his character died mm-hmm. and was a little upset. And then it does feel like he's not being honored because his death was sort of like is he dead and we're like who knows and then yeah. i guess he's on this board right it just it was it was abrupt and and doesn't well because they yeah they, they have the preview of the next episode i mean i really remember this at the time when it first aired and being like what they is he dead is the gray worm dead what happened here and then if you look at the preview for the next episode i believe you see gray worm standing and you see somebody Mm-hmm. on like this plank it's like was that Barristan we gotta go back and pause it and like zoom in is that him I think it is oh man they killed him yeah and, you know it's like and that's not that's not the sort of cliffhanger that again I think I think it was a little cheap on the part of the show and in terms of trying to be like have a cliffhanger from episode to episode and right. it undercuts I think what was interesting about the character and sort of the dignity of the character and I mean also knowing that in the books Barristan goes on to become a point of view character and has a good (laughs) number of chapters and all this stuff I think Um, that's why the actor might have been surprised that he died (laughs) so it's just sort of out of nowhere and the reason for doing it here is to have this cliffhanger Mm -hmm. I think it's it doesn't pay off yeah no and I, I I know that they wanted to have Daenerys be more and more isolated that okay Jorah's gone and now Barristan's dead and Grey Worm's sort of in recovery right but I think there's a way to do that that doesn't cheapen it with the cliffhanger Mm -hmm. I don't know I think there's two there's like one that's for the larger story that sort of makes some sense but then there's what they did for the episode that feels like you guys this didn't you didn't need to do not everything needs to be a cliffhanger Mm -hmm. people are gonna watch the show yeah (laughs) I'd at least just make it more clear Mm -hmm. you know and more if Barristan turned to Grey Worm and had some dying words or something. I don't know. I feel or, like or if I he got like his his throat cut so that we know mm. like no he's dead. Yeah. That, that it was, but he I don't know he got like he got a sword to the back of the leg. Yeah. It's not necessarily fatal. Right. Yeah. Grey Worm got like stabbed in the abdomen. I mean it's. <laughs> yeah. They probably punctured his lung and yeah. he's fine. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and this this happens in all sorts of things in order to create tension like the Unsullied and Barristan are supposed to be such good fighters and then to have them be beaten makes it feel like people were were exaggerating how good they were yeah 
But this is maybe not, a, we're going out of order, so I'm just going to keep with that. There was a fight, though, that was intentionally bad, and I really liked that for this episode, that the fight with Bronn and Jamie and the Dornishmen. Uh, yes. I really liked that, mm-hmm. because Jamie should be bad. Yeah. Jamie can't really fight anymore. <laughs> and it's, you know, I think... I think I like this more this time around the last than originally. I think originally I was still a little appalled that this whole plot line was happening <laughs> and it maybe didn't allow me to enjoy like how kind of funny some of the stuff is and just sort of how much fun they're having with the, with the story here mm-hmm. because the dynamic between Jamie and Braun is really funny and then yeah this this whole fight where these Dornish men come in on the horses Braun takes one of them out off the horse, stabs another one, and then is is fighting like the remaining one, which he actually I think he like goes chasing after him. Like this horse runs away. <laughs> you see him chasing after this man on a horse while Jamie is left to fight the one what he called the what slower version because mm-hmm. he knocked him off his horse and, and injured him partly. So yeah. The whole catching sword and the golden hand. Yeah. And then he can't let go of it. Yeah. So there there's the things that are really played for laughs. The fact that Jamie he he's he's not doing well. He gets mm. he almost gets, you know, pushed down a, a sandy bank and his hand does come in use in useful, but he's not the man that he was. No. And I don't it's maybe not he did maybe didn't even know how badly he was fighting. Mm-hmm. And it's, then he like then this fight he's like, Oh man, I really am not up to my up to snuff but yeah i like the scene between jamie and braun even when they're on the boat mm-hmm. you know coming towards braun is speaking all sorts of truths mm-hmm. to jamie that he's not quite ready to hear um maybe some of the things that jamie thinks are uh secrets are a little more out in the open than he realizes mm-hmm. and braun's not one to hold his tongue you know he says that he would uh, kill Tyrion if he ever saw him again which it's unclear if he really means that or is he just posturing in front of Bronn. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bronn asks, again, as an as an audience surrogate here, why are you going to Dorne? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that we ever really... Jamie's answer is, it has to be me. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I really buy it. Like, I, I, I still think that's... like It makes sense in the show, obviously, because, it, once again, it's like... Let's compress the story in mm-hmm. instead of bringing in another character or I think essentially like not ever going to Dorne. Yeah, I think they were going to cut it out entirely. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, we can send Jamie and yeah. Bronn. We can send some faces mm-hmm. down there that people would recognize to follow it and able to actually do it. Yeah. And this it has to be me. I think that he may feel that in order to make up to Cersei, he has to be the one to save their daughter because he's they're still... In the show, they're still trying to make them work, even, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, he even says uh, later when they've landed in Dorne that he wants to die in the arms of the woman I love, which yeah. may be foreshadowing about who kills who True. and how. But, and then Braun asks, does she want the same thing? Which I think has two readings. One, does she want you? Does she want to hold you in mm-hmm. her arms? Also, does she want to you to die in right. her arms, right? So I really, I really liked, I liked that yeah. interaction. So, yes, the Jamie and Braun show in Dorne is maybe not as bad as we remembered. They eat snake. They yeah. <laughs> they they fight they fight guys. Yeah. It's fine. It, Jamie again in his like whatever sense of honor they still want him to have here. He wants to bury the bodies after they're done, which also seems like it's maybe hide for hiding them as well. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it, they carry forward with the comedy stuff and he's like not very good at shoveling. <laughs> think uh i can't really do it at all actually <laughs> which is funny and so 
of course, that means Bronn's going to have to do all the work. Mm-hmm. And elsewhere in Dorne, we meet the Sand Snakes. Mm-hmm. We see Ilaria on her uh, her stallion mm-hmm. running across the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I liked thinking of that transition as elsewhere on the beach. <laughs> right. And we meet Obara and Nim and Tyene. We see that they each, well, at least we see uh, Obara's spear and Nim's whip. So those will be important. Like mm-hmm. those are their weapons. We hear a little bit of Obara's backstory. We see that they are pretty violent, kind of rash, not thinking, mm-hmm. don't value peace at all. And they so they like Ilaria's plan a lot. Yeah. And, you know, this is the introduction of these characters. And I don't know, did you... What did you think of the introduction of these characters? Like, uh, were you convinced about them? Were you interested in seeing what they what they were going to do with those characters? Or were you immediately sort of like, oh, I don't like the way this is going? If I can go back to when I first saw it, I think I was interested. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I'm like, the Sand Snakes in, in the books are badass. And we've got these, these women, some of the only women of color. And they're like fighting machines supposedly Mm -hmm. and so i think i was i I still think at this point it was okay i think it was still okay but it's hard it's hard for me now to having seen as you know as much of the show as there is because with oberon there's they sort of have some characteristic of oberon and it's that they are rash but capable Mm -hmm. and we certainly see their rashness but we don't i don't think ever get to see that they're actually good Mm -hmm. at what they do right they're gonna end up in jail pretty soon in the water garden and then their story from now from like this point on is a bit is basically getting beaten by lots of different people yeah and so i think that makes it hard again again with the sort of what happened with with the unsullied and sir barristan is that if you have someone who's built up as a great fighter but always loses Mm -hmm. it seems like maybe they weren't such good great fighters yeah, I wonder if that's the case. And I wonder if that will be the way it ends up playing out in the books as well, because they, they do spend the majority of the time we have with them captured yeah. by, by Duran, actually, mm-hmm. who's just holding them from causing trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a scene uh, later where he seems to release them and kind of put them all on their separate tasks. And so we don't quite know how that ends up playing out yet, because mm-hmm. Those rest of the stories have not been written, but right, right. What did you think? Did, was this a was this a sufficient introduction? Is it since you liked the the Jamie and, and Bronze stuff? Mm-hmm. Is Dorne at this point still okay? I think it is still okay at this point. I kind of wish the Sand Snakes had I don't know maybe a little bit more of like an establishment place. I think the fact that it does feel like they're just somewhere else on the beach in this random tent. <laughs> Is kind of like their weird torture tent. Yeah, it's and it's kind of like, what are they doing here? What is this place? I think that they don't have kind of like a space that helps establish them. I I think makes them feel more just sort of aloof as characters. It's sort of like how grounded they are, how important they are. They don't have a location, and I think that undercuts their sort of establishment and makes them just a little bit less serious. Yeah. as far as their their ability to be major players. And so I think I was not sold on them. I think I was still just kind of, oh, we'll see how this goes kind of thing. Like, yeah. it's not, not quite convinced, but not also like disappointed or something like that. Just sort of a little bit middling about them at this point. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, I think that's right. I like the, I like your point about 
them not having a space because Mm. how do you take them seriously if they just have this weird lean to and it was probably that they had invested so much in doran's spot Mm -hmm. that they couldn't maybe think of a place that would be different enough but also impressive for the sand snakes but they maybe should have because it would have made them feel more serious yeah they don't feel very serious yeah i think if you know i think alaria has a cool entrance again she Mm -hmm. she got it riding in on Mm -hmm. this horse um but then she just you know arrives at this little spot um Mm -hmm. And they're just standing there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of waiting around. They do have a, one of the Sand Snakes, I don't remember which one, does vocally say the word Planky Town. So again, they're like, some ways the show is cognizant that there is a diverse geography to mm-hmm. Dorne mm-hmm. Um, in different places. But in other times, for I would say most of the part with the show, they seem to just condense everything. And you don't really get a sense of of place at all with that yeah i mean i think you're right so when we get back to king's landing we see cersei who is meeting with the high sparrow who seems like is maybe now been installed as the high septon mm-hmm. of the faith and she proposes that they reinstate the faith militant this is again sort of a turning of the tables from the books where essentially the the high sparrow would be proposing this as a solution to some of their problems in this case Cersei takes the initiative mm-hmm. and is intent on giving a little on this front and getting a little on another, as at least that's what she thinks. And she is intent on uh, enraging the Tyrells and capturing Loras. And mm-hmm. so she sees an avenue for that. Yeah. And it seems to surprise even the High Sparrow because it's been 200 years. And if in the books, it's clear like, this was a dangerous group of people. <laughs> yeah. But and they don't get too much into it, like no. why they were disbanded. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was a king said, like, no, you can't do this anymore. Like, we have to, like... We have to have some order and right. law. <laughs> yeah. And there's this conversation they have that wars teach people to obey the sword. Well, they forget to obey the gods. They obey the sword. And then there's this weird sort of convergence of the two that the faith militant is both god and the sword Mm -hmm. and again this is where cersei i think thinks she's implanting the idea in jonathan price's head that the wealthiest are beyond reach and Mm -hmm. that there there are some there are people who disobey the will of the gods and let me tell you about one right and things go things get serious real fast yeah in montage form Mm -hmm. you know as soon as the faith militant is is reinstated then we have a number of scenes that, that intercut between going to the Littlefinger's brothel once again and sort of raiding it this mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. totally shutting it down. They also break open uh, like wine ca- or uh, beer casks. Mm-hmm. and They smash idols. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who are selling images of other religions. There's also being, it's being intercut with Lancel getting his uh, scarification, mm-hmm. his, his sign of the seven on his forehead. And then the sort of the transition from the the more general to the particular is there are two men in Littlefinger's brothel who are going to be either killed or castrated. It's not really clear for engaging in homosexual acts. Yeah. And then in the meantime, they go and arrest Loras Tyrell. Right. Who is, you know, just sparring in the yeah. yard. Yeah. And this is kind of a flurry of activity shots and cutting again cutting back and forth between all the stuff going on in Lancel mm-hmm. and then is halted with Marjorie busting in on Tom and slamming her hands down on the table and saying like what they've arrested my brother what are you going to do about it and Tom is just like got his 
knife and fork and he's just like eating and he's just like what what he's like i didn't do it and she's like yes i know your mother and then he seems shocked the idea that that marjorie right that marjorie and cersei don't like each other and marjorie tries to change tactics but she's obviously really upset and then tommen goes to cersei sort of pretending to putting on his sternest face but it's not very stern and Cersei's able to say, honestly, I don't have him. Yeah. And then she says, okay, you go talk to the High Sparrow, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a great illustration of, like, the mother-son dynamic between them. Because mm-hmm. he is, he cannot do anything. Mm-hmm. He is king in name. But he doesn't, he doesn't have that much power. And he certainly doesn't feel like he has right. the power. He kind of doesn't know the power he has, so he doesn't know how to use it. Yeah. Or is not not willing to use it. Um, and this is sort of Cersei getting back at Tommen a little bit mm-hmm. for... Telling him that he should, that she should, telling her that she should go back to Castaway Rock. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, well, we'll see who wields the power here. Yeah. She's like, go talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he goes and he's, he's very meek looking and he goes to the Sept of Baylor and the Faith Militant bar the way. And then Tom and Defeated goes back to Marjorie and says like, I'll, I'll try. She goes, when? And he's like, soon <laughs> yeah he's like he's he was praying <laughs> he yeah. said he couldn't talk to me yeah i really like the shot where he goes there mm-hmm. and he's kind of blocked away they have this you know high angle shot and it mm-hmm. makes him look very diminutive mm-hmm. the the king's guard offer to kill all of the faith militants that are there which maybe you should have gone with that option tom and yeah. like, things might have been a little different had mm-hmm. that been the case who knows who these king's guard are at this point i don't know but no i, I don't there wasn't one of them speaks but he, he backs down amidst shouts of bastard and abomination and all these kind right. of things that seem like the common people are buying into the story that he is born of incest mm-hmm. and do not have any love for him yeah, so he he had, is sent home with his tail between his legs, and Marjorie also. She's like, "I'm gonna go talk to my grandma. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna send a yeah. letter, and I have to be with my family." So the Tyrell sort of close ranks against the Lannisters, which is exactly what Cersei wants, right? So yeah, poor little Tommen, little little Tom Tom, just is not a very effective king. <laughs> well. A, a child that seems like maybe she fares a little bit better, at least for the interim, not yeah. in the long run, of course. Well, nobody fares well in the long run in Game of Thrones, but is Shireen, who mm-hmm. sort of appeals to her father, Stannis, and is a, a very touching moment. Yeah. Perhaps should have been a tip-off um, <laughs> that we're giving these characters touching moments together and mm-hmm. a bit of humanity. I was also under the impression from this that... Stannis is not aware of this plan to burn Shireen. Yeah, what, do you, what do you think? I don't think so. I don't think he knows. I think only Solis and Melisandre know. Mm-hmm. I think if you told him about it now, he would be horrified. It's just he gets more and more desperate and cling, and later he'll cling on to this like, but I need to be king. And then he's willing to give anything up. Mm-hmm. But at this point, he's not. Yeah. In fact, he's very defiant. You know, talk tells a story about how he brought all the maesters in mm-hmm. and... They also give an origin of Shireen's grayscale, mm-hmm. which again, this is these are all things that were built up for the show. We don't we don't hear these stories, and we certainly don't know how Shireen got grayscale in the books. So uh, it's kind of cool that they came up with some reasoning. I, I really liked this one, mm-hmm. and especially since we we've been so set against Elise and the way that she's like, I've only given you weakness and mm-hmm. girls, and like, and she she really dislikes her daughter, and then to have Stannis 
say you're the princess Shireen and you're my daughter and mm-hmm. you didn't belong with the bloody stone men right yeah. I, I mean I'm a total sucker for like touching father daughter moments mm-hmm. so I maybe shed a tear <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was really good it was a surprise for Stannis but I think one of those things where even if folks may have been a little cool on Stannis like oh no Stannis he's He's a good dad. He's the manis, yeah. I think, is when maybe that started uh-huh. circulating. We'll see how they feel soon. <laughs> right. It's not too far. Yeah. Short-lived. But And then there's the scene where Melisandre approaches John. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> it is. I think, are we supposed to gather from that that she knows that he has king's blood? <sighs> because isn't that sort of important when it comes to making the shadow baby? Or right. is it just power that you just need to have the power i don't know <laughs> anyway or is it just to show melisandre's boobs uh <laughs> a little bit of both yeah <laughs> um. yeah so it's a weird i guess it's another it's another temptation for john mm-hmm. that he's he steals his resolve and maybe also to show that melisandre can see into his brain because her parting words with him are you know nothing mm-hmm. and she gives a sort of a, a knowing look and it's like she's She's able to, she knows something about Egret, I think. Right, yeah. Or, or at the very least, she's able to, like, I don't know, read his mind or something, something. you know. Yeah. She, she has weird powers. But she wants a shadow baby. Right, because she talks about, I'm bringing you life or something like that, All right, That's Yeah, the... embrace your power to cast shadows, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's telling him to embrace his power. So it's a weird scene. It would make sense later when she, when now John is her chosen one. Mm-hmm. Is it? Like, is she already hedging her bets? Yeah, that, that is, yeah, that that happens now is a little strange. Like, yeah, he was voted Lord Commander, but he's know. still just a guy, right? <laughs> as far as you know, unless she can like sense the king's blood. But then she should have made some sort of hint about the blood. Or I mean, I don't know. I wish there was had been some sort of some indication that like you've got an unusual power. Mm-hmm. Like, where who who were your parents? Something yeah. like that might have been make it a little bit more clear yeah they do have some uh nice framing on that when they have the close-ups of their faces sort mm-hmm. of just both kind of almost like uh how they sometimes do that the optical illusion where it's like the two faces and they kind of makes a cup yeah or a yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah, yeah. almost do that exact same thing here so you really see their their faces in profile and it's you know it's a little bit of that ice and fire thing happening again mm-hmm. but it's like oh, but this is the wrong fire <laughs> the bad fire <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting that John pulls away from this under the justification of being still loyal to Igret. Like, yeah. of all the, I feel like there's a number of reasons where you could pull away from this situation, mm-hmm. um, but he goes with that one. So yeah, the more that we're talking about it, just feel it does just feel like they wanted some nudity mm-hmm. because I don't I don't know if there's really a good reason for it to be there. I remember being really surprised at the scene originally. <laughs> be like what what is going on Um, or if it was more clear that she needed a smoke baby for something yeah right that would would be something why would she need a smoke baby right now yeah what does she need to do (laughs) right right so i would just i mean there were lots of possible explanations and i feel like we're not given any of them (laughs) but if if she was like i'm going to try to assassinate roose bolton Mm -hmm. i need a smoke baby yeah that would be like okay that's why she that's why she needs to do this. Yeah, it's some sort of offhanded thing with Celise, right? Or you know, yeah. But it, it doesn't happen, and the only thing we had was like an episode or two ago of when she and John and Melisandre were in the elevator together, and it's like, "Are you a virgin?" And it's like, "No." It's like, 
what does that what does that even matter? I don't know. If like, she just likes making him uncomfortable, I guess. I, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just that she would feel like that was kind of the thing with Gendry, right? Gendry was a virgin. They they mm-hmm. said that. So maybe there's some sort of virgin sacrifice thing maybe. or something going maybe. on. Maybe. Or if there's, I mean, we can sort of intuit this about her that, like, she is attracted to power. Mm-hmm. But if they even said something, like, Melisandre can always sense, like, the like the most powerful person in the room. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Like, some sort of explanation by why she just keeps bothering John. In the books, it's more clear because she, I mean, maybe they're just trying to convey this, that she's she's asking for visions and mm. all she sees is snow, right? right? So maybe they're like, this is the way to do that. Yeah. But it's a lot more clear in the book. Right. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's almost, it almost seems like over the top in the books in some ways and sort of telegraphing like, she's like, show me, you know, Azora High. And they like, it keeps showing me this picture of Jon Snow for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I don't get it. Well, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, so it could be that they were trying to to do those scenes in a different way. But um, yeah, this it's a little. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, why? Why are they doing this? It's so strange. <laughs> Other than you know, Jon Snow and his redheads. Uh, yeah, he there's loves that too. redheads. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's largely we're meeting the boob quotients, but yeah. I mean, there were other there were other boobs. The, 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 yeah, because the, the the brothel scene. Was Although maybe it scene. was violent boobs. Maybe they were doubling up, though. You know, <laughs> it's like oh, we didn't have enough last time, so yeah, I we, guess. Had, we had to have that Emmy nominated episode. So <laughs> it's sort of shift gears here. Oh well, back it to will, the basics. It will it will be a mystery. I think <laughs> I don't think it's ever probably satisfactorily answered. And to go slightly south, mm-hmm. we've got. Sansa in the crypts at Winterfell near her Aunt Lyanna statue. And there's a there's a callback to when uh, Robert Baratheon uh, right. visited in, like, the very first episode. Yeah, with the feather. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember why that's a feather? I don't remember what... I I read some on. sort of explanation that he, like, just bring. It's, like, supposed to be an exotic feather. That okay. he just, like, brings her things, from uh. like, interesting things from far away in the world that he thinks she would like. Hmm. I don't know that the feather itself is important, although it's blue and her color is blue. Yeah, the winter roses. Yeah. I mean, Littlefinger mentions that because he tells the story of Rhaegar, which mm-hmm. I believe is the first time we've heard the story in the show. I think so. And that we're a long ways into the show <laughs> <laughs> to uh, be getting the first time that we've recounted the the tourney at Harrenhal, mm-hmm. where all the all the business went down. Yeah, and Littlefinger shows that that the story that Sansa knows about. Lyanna being kidnapped and raped, mm. he seems to notice it and maybe disagree, but not say anything. Yeah, he he. Rem- there's a notable pause. You'd be like, sure. Silence. He's like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's good for now. You don't need to know. But we get that story, and it makes sense that we also hear about Rhaegar later in this episode with Danny and and Barristan. So we he, we we get a little like here's Lyanna and here's Rhaegar, and we hear mm. a little about them, and that they were both seemingly lovely people. Yeah. But then we also hear Littlefinger's plan, mm-hmm. which means that he trusts in Stannis, which yeah. is strange. One, he thinks Stannis has a bigger army, which is not mm-hmm. true, at least what the show has said. Yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah. And also, at least in the books, Stannis hates Littlefinger. Yeah. And so it doesn't, it seems weird that, he, that he's like, his linchpin is Stannis's triumph. And then his other plan is make Ramsay yours. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is sort of an impossible task. Yeah. 
the and Littlefinger, I think this was actually maybe last episode where he talks to Ramsay up on the battlements mm-hmm. and he says, you know, it's the curious thing. I don't really know much about you. And Ramsay's almost playing like a little, not playing dumb, but he's acting very sort of like ignorant boy, kind mm-hmm. of like, I've only just recently become, he's kind of meek. Even. Yeah. I've and only just recently become a lord. I promise I'll never hurt her. Yeah. And... <laughs> He doesn't, but he also doesn't seem like like the camera would turn away and then it's like this evil grin or something like that. Like we know Ramsey's evil at this point for the things he's done to mm-hmm. Theon, but they don't want really to play up that slyness to a, to a certain extent. Yeah, and and maybe they're trying us to get us to believe that like since Ramsey got what he wanted, although we have seen him flay people recently, right. very recently, that maybe that he would treat Sansa differently. In the books, he has already been married. Mm. to a woman who he locked up and who died having eaten her own fingers because she was starving. So we are under no illusion of what kind of husband he'll be. It was a forced marriage also, but yeah. But still, she ate her fingers. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So Littlefinger seemingly really doesn't know what he's gotten Sansa into, has lots of big plans for how this is going to work out. Sansa's kind of into it. Mm -hmm. She seems nervous, but the idea of being wardeness of the North is appealing, and he kisses her again. So yeah. yeah, so he's getting what he wants. <laughs> yeah, and I don't. I don't think the plan is absurd. It is like it is a high risk plan, though. Mm-hmm. It is dependent on a lot of things coming together that are not Littlefinger orchestrating them. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like I'm going to leave, and I think this will probably happen, rather than like I'm going to do this thing. And I think that is maybe the tip off. That should be the tip off to Sansa that maybe like this might not work out this way like it's it is not being orchestrated yeah it, although he does say you know i'm I'm a gambler and so mm-hmm. and so maybe it's i think when i first watched this i was like what is you know that feeling that he that he was still pulling the strings or that he knew what was going to happen mm-hmm. and it seems like he's taking a risk but what he thinks is an educated risk yeah and it just gets way out of his control mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't think anything that i don't think any of this is like totally unbelievable mm-hmm. um i think it's it has a certain degree of justification i just think there's there's some things where we could have been i i feel like i could have been watching it with a little bit more of like a, a skepticism of being like yeah again Littlefinger is not as in control as he normally would be in these sort of situations and maybe that's telling yeah or maybe we're supposed to believe that he is with this meeting with, with Cersei mm-hmm. in the way that we didn't realize how many things he orchestrated before this. Maybe we're supposed to believe he's more in control, right. but that it's that it's an illusion. We, I mean, we have reached the end of his like grand plan or right. orchestration here. He doesn't really have a plan beyond this. And it, starting with this move here, it's a total, it all feels improvised. It mm-hmm. all feels like he's making decisions in the moment, largely, uh, instead of having this grand plan mm-hmm. yeah and it's not gonna go great <laughs> no, it's gonna go very <laughs> I'm actually, poorly i'm actually kind of dreading the unbowed unbent unbroken episode right. but that's, it's coming up that'll be our, our one of our next two here yeah so. yeah i'm i will watch it but i won't like it <laughs> <laughs> but we will talk about all that when we get to it i think that's going to bring us to a close here for yeah. this this pair of episodes so yeah, I think I think well done, Mark Malord. Agreed. I think good episodes, and for how much, other than the ending of Sons of the Harpy, mm-hmm. which ha- is sort of disappointing, everything else holds together pretty well for having as many characters and as many like juggling as many plot lines. I agree. I I agree. 
it's it still remains sort of a interesting look at the way that the show is adapting the books and the the pace at which they're doing everything but i think especially given the material that director was given here i think follows through on it quite well yeah good job (laughs) way to go mark (laughs) so that will bring us to a close here Again, you can find all of our podcasts at themoversfarce.libsyn.com. You can uh, listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Just make sure to search for The Mummers Farce. You can follow us on Twitter at MummersFarcePod or send us an email at themummersfarcepodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us in any way that you can. We're here. We're here. And we will continue to be here for <laughs> at least another, I don't know, eight weeks or so. We'll see how many episodes we can uh, squeeze in here. And we'll return next time with two more episodes from the middle of season five. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Bye, Dan. See ya, Kate. Bye. Bye.